Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Exodus chapter 17. Father, would you open the word? We know you will. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you now. Bring life to us. And I pray for grace to speak the word of God faithfully and under your anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk today about the rock at Rephidim. As Israel went out from the Red Sea towards Sinai, as they basically came into the very area of Mount Sinai, there's a great rock there. And uh, they called it Rephidim, which I think means pillars. And uh, they were out of water. And the Lord directed them to this rock and actually had, if you, I, I'll read it to you in a minute, had the waters, rivers of water, not a little bit of water, but rivers of water pour out of this rock of all things and to give water to the people. Great lesson and example of Jesus Christ in this. It was intended to be. And uh, we're going to see that. Here's our discussion guide. Many, uh, Jesus Christ did not simply die to forgive our sins. If that were all he did, we would still have a wonderful gift for which we would be eternally grateful. But when we believe in him, we also receive another gift. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit who, because we have been made holy by our faith in Jesus, can join himself to us forever. Not only are Christians forgiven... But we are also filled. Would you say that with me? Not only are Christians forgiven, but we are also filled. Say it again. Not only are Christians forgiven, but we are also filled. It's really important to get this through our heads. Because when you become a Christian, a miracle, I mean a really a Christian, a born-again Christian, and I'm going to qualify that in a minute. But when you come into Christ like that, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I've seen a bumper sticker around. It says, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And I, I have only an argument with one of the words. Just. And, and the picture with, when you word, use the word just, it's like, don't expect anything different from my life. Uh, don't put me under any microscope and, and consider that my life should be different than anyone else's. It's not. But I am going into heaven and you're not. Nah, nah, nah. That's kind of, I guess, the, the message of, of the bumper sticker. The point is, it isn't true. You're not just forgiven. Now, if we were just forgiven, that would be a good thing. I mean, if, all, if, if when I got to heaven, the, there was no, you know, there's nothing on my record. No, none of my sins are there, and therefore I get into heaven. That's a good thing. But that's not the whole truth, by any means. All through his ministry... Jesus constantly pointed forward and said, there's coming a new era. Something new is going to burst onto the scene of human history. There will be an era of the Holy Spirit. Because I have come and because of what I've done, there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a measure the world has never seen. He said, and wait for it. In fact, he told his disciples not even to start their evangelistic ministry, to do nothing until that era of the Spirit had broken in upon them. 
Read through the Gospels. Constantly, he keeps saying, he who's coming, he who's coming, he who's coming. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. He was pointing to the Holy Spirit. You are not just forgiven. You are filled with the very Spirit that created heaven and earth. And that changes you, it changes everything. And we must remember that, I guess, as we're thinking of things that are lovely, pure, and of good report. We need to remember who dwells within us. And the rocket Rephidim reminds us of that so powerfully. Not only are Christians forgiven, we are also filled, and that makes good news of the good news of the gospel even better. Jesus gives dry, thirsty people rivers of living water, meaning we have an unlimited supply of God's presence always available to us. All we need do is ask in prayer, and he will refresh us with his spirit. Throughout Israel's history, God ordered certain events so that they would, be, they would prophetically point to the ministry of Jesus Christ. By doing this, he was preparing their hearts and minds to recognize their Messiah when he came. The rock which poured out rivers of water at Rephidim was one of those events. It is a powerful illustration of the crucifixion of our Lord. But it, is all, but it also challenges us to remember the other gift Jesus has given us, the Holy Spirit, whose limitless presence in us opens the door to a brand new life. Exodus chapter 17. How many know what the word type means? In the Old Testament, there are types. And if you really know what I'm talking about, there's also anti-types, but that's really getting theological. Here's, here's what a type is. God built into the history of Israel certain events that now that we know Jesus, we look back on them and they proclaimed Jesus loud and clear. And they were intended to. God designed them to. An example. There was a point at which uh, poisonous snakes were attacking the entire nation and, and people were dying wildly. I mean, it must have been a horrible, horrible kind of event. And God instructed Moses to do something very strange. He said, I want you to take and make a brazen, a brass image of one of these snakes, and I want you to hang it on a pole, and I want you to raise it up so that all can see it. Remember that? And then what happened? Everyone who looked to see that serpent, when they saw it, they were healed. Now, what a strange thing to do. Come on. Why would he do that? Well, when you realize what Jesus Christ did, I mean, it is the most powerful theological statement. And Jesus picks up on it, doesn't he? John chapter 3, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He says, I am what that represented. It's me. And what, a, what, a, what an image. You say, why would he hang a snake on a stick? And, and that would speak of Jesus. Well, the snake is, is the symbol of sin, isn't it? And here the people are being bitten by sin. And so the Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You remember that? Christ literally took on the sin of the world. He took on the sin of the world. And here, here is this powerful type in the Old Testament, preaching the gospel, really, preparing the hearts of Israel so that when their Messiah came, they'd go, oh, why, that's just like Moses. That was what was supposed to happen. The rock that we're going to look at today is a type. It's a very powerful type, which teaches us a very important lesson. That the Messiah 
would be struck. And that when he was, he would pour out rivers of water. And Jesus teaches from that very thing. All, when then all the congregation of the sons of Israel, 17.1, journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? So apparently the thing is turning into a mob action. There's a milling, there's a sullenness, there's an anger that's coming, and Moses feels that shortly they'll drag him out, put him in the center, and, and stone him. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff which, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And Horeb is the name of the mountain range of which Sinai is one peak, by the way. So we're right there in that whole area. And you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah, meaning argument or strife, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You've never heard anybody say that. What was the problem here? They're thirsty, and they begin to be angry again and quarrel with him. And the Lord says to Moses, take the rod that you struck the Nile with and go out and pass before the people. In other words, the whole congregation, uh, the whole nation of Israel is to gather. You're to stand in front of them with the elders with you so that everybody knows no funny business is going on. Everybody can see this thing up close. You've got the leaders watching this. I want them to see the whole thing with their own eyes. And he said, "Then the, you, you don't pick this up if you, if you don't know the Hebrew, but... He says, I will stand before you. And that phrase, stand before, is actually used in Hebrew a lot, but it, you, always for a servant standing before its, his master. Now pick this up. God says to Moses, I will stand before you like a servant. I mean, what on earth? So he says, I will stand there upon the rock. And he said, then I want you to take that staff and I want you to strike the rock. And when you do, water will pour forth. In other words, strike me. Strike me, and I'll pour forth water for the people. And Moses did that, and did a little water come out? I mean, was it like, hey, look, everybody, cup of water, cool? It wasn't that, was it? Literally, enough for two million people poured out, and I think probably kept pouring out, it appears. Just kept, there was just rivers of water that poured out from a rock at Rephidim. Now, let me show you this. It happened again. Maybe you didn't know that. Numbers chapter 20. God did that same sort of miracle again. But the circumstances are a little different. This is nearly 40 years later. Moses has been waiting now for the whole old generation to die. They've already refused to go into the land uh, maybe 38 years ago. And... 
they didn't, they didn't go in, if you recall, and now God has the whole old generation dying. And by now, it's really just Caleb and Joshua and Moses, a few old folks left. And uh, here's what happens. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, these are young people now, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, that would be, and it's the entry point to the promised land. Now Miriam died there and was buried, that's his sister. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. We wish we died uh, in the judgments that have been over the last 40 years, and possibly maybe Korah's rebellion. Uh, we wish we died with those who hated you and God. Wow, that's cool. And then, why then have you brought us the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die, there, die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates like you promised, or water to drink. And then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. What is he supposed to do? Ah, Notice that? Last time he struck it. This time he's simply to speak to it. Pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We ask you to give us water from this rock. And it would pour out. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? All right, he's lost it. He has. And you can't blame Moses. This has been, a, this has been the camping trip from hell. <laughs> it has, hasn't it? It's absolutely, he's had two million people on a camping trip. They are the mo, they're like a group of whining scouts or something, you know, just everybody's miserable and angry at him. And he's leading this thing, and it's been 40 years, and his, his patience, his emotions have absolutely gone. And I would, I, you can hardly blame him. Their parents did this to him. And now the children that are supposed to be the new generation, the hope for the future... They're saying just exactly the same sort of horrible things that their parents said. So he's absolutely undone. It's like, oh, no. And so he gets out there and he looks at him and he says, you rebels. And he takes the, the staff. What's he supposed to do? What's he do? He hits, he wonks the thing. I mean, he hits it twice in anger. He just, and then he says, shall we, meaning Aaron and me bring you water and strikes this thing. Now, I'll tell you something. If I were God, no way water would have come out of that rock. <laughs> I'd let him have that whole angry mass of people in front of him and he'd beaten on that rock. And <laughs> and I'd let the people just take him down. But would you notice God's grace? He strikes the thing. He's not supposed to do that at all. 
and water pours forth. God is so merciful. God is so merciful. But of course we know that 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 is the situation, that anger, that bitterness, the sourness of spirit toward the people. Uh, God says, you're through. Uh, you're going to not take them in. You don't have the heart anymore for that. What's the lesson? The first lesson from the rock is that Jesus must be struck once. Only once. Let's see that striking. John chapter 19. This is a prophetic type, and it's describing something that would happen. By the way, one of the most common terms for the Lord in the Old Testament, a very common term, is He is our rock. You remember that? I believe this is the rock it refers to. I mean, this became part of Israel's memory that this, this rock poured out water in the wilderness. It says here that as He was being crucified... The religious leaders wanted the bodies off of the crosses and not up there on their holy day. And so they asked that all of them be killed. And the way they did it would be break the legs of the people so that they suffocate. That's another issue altogether. But verse 33, coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately what came out? Now look at that. Blood and water. I've always assumed, and I think it may be the case, that Jesus died with an enlarged heart. That, that there was the swelling of his heart and the pericardial sac filled with fluid from the tremendous abuse that he had been submitted to. And so when the Roman spear had a blade the size of a man's hand. And so they slipped it under his rib cage and, and just put that thing right straight through his heart. This was their job. They knew exactly how to do it. So they split his heart in half and then out poured the blood and out poured the water from around the pericardial sac. That may be a medical explanation of it. But whether it was intended or not, I believe there's a powerful message. And, and I think John spots something because in the next verse he reacts and he says, And he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. He says, I was there. I saw it with my own two eyes. Blood and water poured out of him. And remember, John was the disciple who didn't run. Out of all of them, he didn't run. He stood actually at the foot of the cross with Mary beside him and let Jesus tell him that he was to care for his mother. And Mary became like John's own mother. And indeed, he did care for her. So John says, I was there. I watched this. And out of him poured blood and water. I'm telling you the truth. Well, blood speaks of our forgiveness. Jesus died for our forgiveness. His blood, his life poured out is why we can be forgiven for our sins. But the water, the rock poured out Water. What does water symbolize? It symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And I'll show you this. Go with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus is up in an area called Samaria. It, near a town that used to be called Shechem, where 
Jacob had a plot of land and had given that plot of land to Joseph on his deathbed, if you recall. And he's near Jacob's well. And he comes, he's, he's thirsty, and he sits by the well, and a woman, who's a Samaritan woman, comes up, and, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now, she's a bit surprised because so much racial and religious tension are between the two groups, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, that they normally wouldn't talk to one another. And she says, what are you doing talking to me, a Samaritan woman, you, you uppity uh, Jew there? You, you don't talk to us, do you? And Jesus doesn't get put off at all, but, but turns to her and he says, Honey, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask for a drink from me. Man, he goes right at it. If you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask for a drink from me. And he said, and I would give you living water. Oh. Then, he, then she begins to say, you don't have a bucket and you don't have a rope. And this thing a couple hundred feet deep. It is. I've been there, by the way. And I've dropped a rock down that thing. And it just, I don't know how many hundreds of feet deep it is, but it's an amazingly deep well. She says, you can't get water. And then he says to her, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of well springing up to eternal life. I can give you the water that quenches your spiritual thirst. I'm going to, I can give you an unlimited supply of spiritual life of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Go with me to chapter 7. I just want you to see this theme. I mentioned how strongly it was in Jesus' heart that something was coming that he would release. He would release rivers of water. Verse 37 of John 7. And this takes place, it says, on the, la uh, the last day of the great feast. This is the Feast of Booths. Do you know what they did on the Feast of Booths? That does not say booths, or it sounds like they're drinking booths. On the feast of booths, they would make these little uh, outdoor um, brush arbors. And they would all sleep and camp out under these, in the, uh, outside under these brush arbors. What was that remembering? The Exodus. They would reenact the Exodus and remember their deliverance. And so here they're having this, this week-long feast Sleeping out under booths, remembering the exodus, and then Jesus does this. He stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. How loudly could he say it? I'm the rock. I'm the rock. I pour out rivers of water like God did in the, in the, in the wilderness. Now, in case we wonder what he's talking about, John absolutely defines it for us in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit. See that? When he talks about rivers of living water, he's talking about an abundance, an unlimited supply of the presence of the power of God. He says, I'm, I'll pour out rivers of the Holy Ghost. Rivers of the Holy Ghost. Whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given. Do you see that? Now, of course the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Covenant and was active there. But what was going to happen hadn't happened yet. 
The resurrection of Jesus would mark a turning point in history. God would work in a new way. There'd be a new outpouring, a new level of things that had, the world had never seen before. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. One more verse. Actually, I've got a couple more. Chapter 14. Here's Jesus in the upper room before he's arrested and he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter, referring to the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides where? With you, but he will be. But not yet. Do you see the change? Something powerful was going to happen at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I won't um, take you to Luke 24, but there he says to his disciples, I want you to wait in the city till you be endued with power from on high. I want you to wait in the city until you be with, endued with power from on high. And then Acts chapter 1. Here he says it again. Verse 4. Gathering his disciples together. This is the resurrected Jesus now. They are seeing him with their own eyes resurrected. You'd think he'd say, all right, everybody, go evangelize the world. He gathers them together and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized, immersed, and saturated with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And they then ask him an eschatological question as people are often prone to do. And then verse 7, he says, it's not for you to know the times or authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And I might add, filled you. The first lesson from the rock is that Jesus must be struck once. And when he does, he brings two gifts, not one. Two gifts, not one. He forgives our sins, and here's the wonder of it all. You see, if he hadn't forgiven our sins, he couldn't fill us with the Holy Spirit. Forgiven our sins in a profound way. You now, whether you understand it or not, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are holy. There is, before God, absolutely no sin. If there were, he would never in the world put his Holy Spirit in an unclean temple. Do you understand? This is the whole issue. He will not come where it's unholy and unpure. The two cannot come together. In, at Mount Sinai, where the Lord's about to appear, we're going to read this shortly in Exodus 19. He makes them put a fence around the, the mountain. And says, I don't want even an animal coming near. Nobody's to come up on this thing. They, they're, they're, to be, they're to die if they do. Because my holiness and their uncleanness cannot come together. But look at you. Look at you. Not only could you go up the mountain. But the very power of the Holy Spirit on the mountain. The fire and the whole thing has come and now lives Joined to your spirit. You are joined to the very Holy Spirit of God in your spirit. It's like there's somehow a union where the Spirit of the Lord comes together with us, within us, and lives with us forever. Are you holy? Are you holy? 
In Christ, he, as, they, as they took that spear and opened him up, outpoured blood and water. Outpoured the, the forgiveness and the cleansing of the, of, of, of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And outpoured the offering of the Holy Spirit that's to be given to us. And we are filled with rivers of living water. You really need to know that. You know, so often people think Christianity is just a second chance. I can get a second chance to do it right this time. Or, or maybe God will sort of forgive my sins, but that's all there is to it. We're just sort of tolerating me till I get to heaven. It's not true. He covers us and then fills us with power. You're not just forgiven. You're born again. Now, you're born again if you're really saved. If you're really a child of God. In a minute, I'm going to talk about how we do that. Because I think there are people who go to church for many, many, many years. And they aren't really born again. You can answer the question right now. You know if the Spirit of the Lord's within you. How could you have rivers of water in there and not know? Doesn't mean you're happy all the time. Doesn't mean everything's cool all the time. But it means there's something inside you. You know God's come within you. That's what makes real Christians so obnoxious. They know that they know that they know they're saved. And you think, how can you be so confident? How can you know so much? What makes you think you're, you're so saved? And they just, because I am. You know, and their eyes snap and they mean it. You know it. You know if he's in there. And may I add, you know if he's not? And if you don't have that, if there's not that presence, I know the Lord's in there. I don't know why, but he's in there. If you don't know, you're not. But I'm going to tell you how. I'll tell you how you can have that. What's the second lesson from the rock? The second lesson from the rock is that it's possible to grow thirsty again. They, grew, they needed water again. Only this time, the solution was not to strike the rock. This rock should only be struck once. Jesus Christ would be crucified for us just once. Once And after that, when we grow thirsty, we can still come to the rock. And how do we get water? We simply ask. We come to that rock and we say, rock, I'm dry. I'm thirsty. And the rock will pour out afresh. Will, will, will fill me afresh. Will pour out rivers of water afresh to refresh me. Christians, we need to remember this. How many are thirsty for more of God? How many are hungry for his presence? I am too. And I want you to know something. All we have to do is ask. Now ask sincerely. Lay hold of him. And he will pour out on us rivers of water. That's our birthright. You know, we're not supposed to go through life just dry and miserable, just sort of trying to get to heaven. We're supposed to go through life full of the Holy Spirit. That's your birthright. That's, it's you have every right to it. When we gather as a church, we have every right to expect the power of God. And if we lack it, it's on our end of the deal. It's not on His. And so when we're right before Him and when we lay hold of Him, we can just have that endless flow. You know, you don't drink a river dry. You don't, you know, you and I may be drinking out of that river, but you're, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. You'll, you'll never drain this river. We've got so much of the Holy Spirit, it's uncontainable. 
So much of God's power and presence that it's uncontainable. We only get little bits of it. We sip out of this river. And yet he wants to give us an abundance beyond what we can contain. I mentioned just a minute ago, I said, you may not sense that I have. I know that I know that the Spirit of the Lord's within me like that. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me define it a little more. When we're born again, we do not remain the same person. We're not simply forgiven. We're filled with a spirit who gives us power to lead victorious and joyful lives. What is the new birth? Let me say, first of all, what it's not. Being born again is not just raising your hand and voting for Jesus. Sometimes we think we just say, you know, how many want Jesus? And, and, and we, yeah, I think Jesus is a good guy. And you know, this is a positive thing. And we sort of orient toward Jesus, you know, in positive ways and say, yeah, go God. We've been living a rebellious life, we've been living a selfish life, and we say, oh, I'm going to try this Christian thing. And so we sort of orient from being away from him and we orient to him. But you know, when you orient like that, it, you can orient away again. Something bad happens and I orient away from him, get mad at God, and then after a while I orient back to God. Then I orient away from God. Those are emotional responses. Those are, those are attitudinal changes. That's not salvation. Or at least it's not the new birth. It's not what Jesus said he came to bring. What he came to bring is a miraculous transformation of the real you. Of your spirit. A born again man or woman is miraculously changed. We have been imparted, we're told, a new nature. My spirit comes alive. I am joined to God forever. I am a son or a daughter of the living God. I'm not just somebody with a new orientation, kind of a new positive religious attitude. I have had something deep happen inside of me. I get a new will. My desire now is to serve God, not myself. Living that out is a whole process, but that's the root of my heart. I want that. I now have a new, new desires. I love the things I once hated, and I hate the things I, love, I once loved. My whole attitude toward life is different. I have a new mind. Spiritual truth is, is not foolish to me anymore. People come up to me now and say, I used to hate reading this book. I love it now. This book never made any sense to me. I'd open it up and nothing ever said anything. I, I didn't understand it, but now I just love this book. I had one woman say to me, I don't, nobody's taught me, I don't have any theological training, but I'm reading through the book of Revelation, she says, and I don't have a whole lot of, I'm not getting any when he's coming stuff, but she says, I love the book of Revelation. I used to be so afraid of it. God has done a deep work in me. Our, spirit, our minds open up to the things of the Spirit. God reveals. A born-again man or woman has that. How do we receive it? Two miracles and a decision. That's all it takes to have rivers of living water, to have the blood wash you, and to have the Spirit fill you. Two miracles and a decision. The first miracle is this, and you'll know if this has happened. You'll know if it's happening right now. The Holy Spirit comes over us and shows us our sin. And I don't mean just makes us feel bad for something we did, but God begins to show you who you are. I mean, the very core of you, your real motivations, your real attitudes about him particularly. That you're independent, that you're rebellious, and that you're fundamentally selfish. 
And that's a miracle, particularly in America, isn't it? In America, we have so psychoanalyzed ourselves and this, that nobody's a sinner in America. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's been injured by their parents or by something that happened. And so I'm not a sinner. I'm just a victim acting out. And so we literally have erased, we have numbed our conscience so that the concept of sin is downright old-fashioned and foolish. And so if you or I as an American can understand that, you know, I really have a selfish heart. I really do live independently from God. There really is something rotten in me. It's a miracle when that happens. And yet if that's happening, praise the Lord for it. That's the Holy Spirit showing you who you are apart from him. Let me tell you, that doesn't go away either. The longer I've been a Christian, I still have the Holy Spirit show me who I am apart from Jesus. And it's still amazing to me that he loves me. But that's the second revelation. The first revelation is who you are. The second revelation is your Savior. And what you're going to find is, as you see all of this about you, you see also him coming to you, loving you. And you're amazed at it. You, you see him saying, I died for you. I, I, I want you for myself. I want you with me forever. You see him and you see you and it's crazy. Why would you love me like this? If you've had those two revelations, that's the Spirit of God who's done that. And I don't believe any human being can come to those revelations apart from a miracle of God. But if you've seen your own sin and you've understood the love of your Savior reaching out to you, then you have one more thing. And you're not saved yet. Those two insights are not enough. There's a decision that must be made. Jesus makes that so clear. Let me, let me show you so you don't think I'm making this up. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Listen to his words. He says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace. And then he begins to say, I'll, I have, I'll put families at odds with one another. He doesn't want that to happen. It's not a positive thing. But he says, when you come to Christ, you have to count the cost. What will my family say? What will my wife say? What will my husband say? What will my parents say? What will happen to me? What will my boss say at work? Folks, you and I make such decisions in the wink of an eye. Don't kid ourselves. When we get presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, you, are ha you have the thought go through your mind so fast, you hardly noticed it go by, but you counted the cost. If I become a real Christian, what will it mean? And you already know what it'll mean. You already know who's going to get angry at you, who's going to respond to you negatively. You already know the price you're going to pay. You know it just like that. And many of us have seen our sin and seen our Savior. 
But when it comes to that moment of saying, will I own Christ? Will I join myself to him? Will I be not ashamed of him? Will I sell out and say, be my Lord and I will serve you with all that I have. If I let go, what would happen? And in a flash of an eye, we think, he'll send me to Borneo. I'll never have that house and car that I want. I know he'll make me give to missions or something. Or I can't keep doing the kind of work I'm doing. I'm, I'm lying at work and I know it and I'll have to quit that job if I become a Christian. My wife will never tolerate this. I'll lose my wife. This is going to put terrible stress in the family. You count the cost just in the wink of an eye. What will it mean if I receive Christ? Two revelations and a decision. But I'm telling you, you make that decision under the working of the Holy Spirit, and here's what happens. The Lord causes you to be born again, and he fills you with the Holy Spirit. Not a little bit. He fills you with rivers of living water, and you are transformed. This is the new birth. It's what Jesus came to bring us. And I want to ask you right now, somebody, as I've been sharing the gospel, because that's what it is. You've got the revelations. You know you're a sinner and you know the love of Jesus Christ is being offered to you right now. And maybe somebody this moment has made the decision and said, I am going to sell out. I am going to own Jesus. I will not deny him. Whatever he, wherever he leads, I will follow him. Would you just say, Jesus Christ, you died for me, and I sell all to be yours. You'll go out of here today knowing that you know, that you know, that you know you're born again. Knowing that you're his, knowing that the Holy Spirit's come in, that you're forgiven and filled, and that you live a brand new life. I promise you. This isn't a bluff and it's not religious uh, psychology. I'm telling you, you'll know. You know. This is real, the new birth. And I, I just encourage you so strongly. Please, if you're at that place, make the choice. What you trade in, what you think you'll lose, is rubbish compared to the eternal life God has for you. Holy Spirit, come now. Minister, Lord, to those of us who are just considering Christ. Minister now, Holy Spirit, to those of us who have received him. And just give us fresh faith. And We come to the rock and we say, rock, we're thirsty. We long for more of you. Thank you that as our Lord was struck, you have been given to us without measure. We would walk in more of your presence and power. We pray, Lord, that you will pour that out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.